studying Colossians every week, and then Christmas came, and then the Israel trip, and you know how it goes. But we're back in Colossians today, Colossians chapter 2. Let's read the first four verses. Paul writes and says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf, and for all who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Father, thank you this morning for your word. We ask that this morning, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would instruct us, and that right now you would soften our hearts to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would do a work in us that would be lasting, that would be of eternal value and that would be fruitful for the expansion of your kingdom and for the glory of your name and for the furtherance of the gospel. We ask that this morning, Lord, by the work of your spirit, you would cause us to be less selfish in who we are and more selfless. That you would impart to us a spirit of intercession, that you would teach us how to pray as a church and as individuals. The Holy Spirit, you would pour the love of the Father abroad here that we'd fall more in love with you and subsequently more in love with one another. And that you just work these deep things in us. Lord, we refuse to just do church this morning. We refuse to just go through the motions. And we ask that, Lord, you would make your word living and active. That you would do radical things here. We believe you to change our individual little hearts. We believe you to change this coastline and this nation. We ask you to start right here. In our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to remember here as we work our way through this passage that the people that Paul is writing to, both the Colossians and the Laodiceans, who he mentions in this verse and later on in chapter 4 as well, you need to remember that he has never met these people. He's never seen them. He's never been to the city of Colossae. He's never been to the city of Laodicea. And yet he's writing to them. You remember that Laodicea is just about 12 miles from the city of Colossae, which is about 100 miles inland from the city of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, which is in the modern-day Turkey. There's an area there called the Lycus Valley, and in the Lycus Valley was Heropolis and Laodicea and Colossae, these three little communities that the Lord had a burden for. And the Lord's burden was placed upon this man, Paul. And when Paul got the burden of the Lord, he began to work on behalf of them for their salvation, for their well-being in Christ. Although Paul had never been there, he's never seen them, and yet he has this incredible heart, love, and concern for them. Verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those in that region who have not seen my face. In verse 5 that we'll look at next week, it says, Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Never been there. He's never seen them. But he says, I'm struggling. We're going to talk about what that means. I'm struggling on your behalf. 
And even though I can't be with you physically, I am with you in spirit. And as we are moving through the book of Colossians, you get the very real sense that he's passionate about these people. His love for God has overflowed through his life in such a way that he loves God's people tremendously, even those that he's never been with. I want you to know how great a struggle or conflict in the King James I have had on your behalf. Now that word struggle in the Greek is the word agnon, or agon, excuse me. And it's where we get our English word agony. Do you guys remember, uh, this will date many of us, a lot of you here won't remember, but do some of you remember uh, CBS's Wide World of Sports? You remember Howard Cosell? What, what did he used to say? I can't, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it showed that guy on the skis and he fell backwards and went off that jump. Remember that? Oh man, the old people. <laughs> Me being one of them, I, I remember it. Well, when Howard Cosell said the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, that's not the way the word is used here in the Bible. It's just the root of it, agon, but it doesn't have those negative connotations. It's not talking about defeat. It's not talking about misery. It's not talking about bad things. Struggle here means strife, contention, contest for victory or mastery, such as was used in the Greek games of running, boxing, wrestling, and so forth. So when Paul says, I've been struggling on your behalf, he's struggling like an athlete that's seeking to win. Like an athlete that's running the race to get first place. Like a boxer that's fighting for his life. Like someone that is in the contest and second place is last in his mind. Struggling, battling like an athlete, seeking the victory. The idea here is that this struggling, this agony brings about victory. It's positive connotations. The New Testament applies the word um, to the context of a contest or the battle that takes place against the enemies of the gospel. Satan and his minions. We see Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12 and he says, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. That word fight, again, is this word agon, struggle. Struggle the good struggle of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. We see a synonym of the word in the same idea in Ephesians 6.12 where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Paul there proclaiming, we do wrestle. There is a battle, there is a contest, there is a fight that takes place in the Christian world. But it's not against flesh and blood. It shouldn't be. Anyway, it's against the powers of darkness, powers and principalities, demonic forces. Now, oftentimes, that which takes place in the spiritual realm manifests itself in the physical realm. And so there might be some sort of battle going on. And I'm talking now about the battle for the gospel. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about, you took my parking spot. Or man, you stole my chick or whatever. I'm not talking about these silly things that go on. I'm talking about a battle for the gospel. I'm talking about Sarah in China, our missionary, who's there undercover because it's illegal to be a missionary in China, understand, and who's there teaching English and yet every day battling to communicate the gospel to these wonderful Chinese people that want to learn English. Every day battling to develop relationship with a culture that is so separate and distinct from ours. Every day battling against the spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness in high places. I'm talking about that kind of battle. 
It might manifest itself in the spiritual realm or, or in the physical realm, such as a communist government over there. But it's not the communist government, really. It's a spiritual battle. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf. He's talking about struggling for the cause of the gospel, specifically struggling or battling in prayer. Unfortunately, this is something that not many in the American church, maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I am. Maybe I should say not enough by my estimation in the church, including myself. Not enough of us know about battling in prayer, struggling, agony, so to speak, striving, competing against the spiritual forces of wickedness. But Paul says, even though I've never seen you cats, I've never been with you, I love you so much, I battle for you in my prayer life. Is there anybody that you're passionate about other than yourself? That's a challenge this morning. Paul is passionate for this people. Battled for them in the spiritual realm, and there's three reasons why. Number one, his love for God. Number two, his love for God's truth. And number three, his understanding of the power of prayer. Number one, his love for God. Understand that your primary occupation as a Christian ought to be to know and experience the love of God. In that, God is glorified, by the way. Proper theology understands that the end of all that God does is to be to his glory. Everything exists by him and for him. It is all for his glory. The salvation of man is not the end of theology or the work of God. We're a subset of that. The end of theology, the end of the work of God, the goal of it, so to speak, is the glory of God. And it's to his glory that sinners like you and I are saved. It's to his glory that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's to His glory that God demonstrated His love and that while we were yet sinners, He gave Christ to die for us. It's to His glory that the Lord is seated in the heavenlies in a high and lofty place and yet He's near to the brokenhearted and the lowly and the contrite. It's to His glory that He saves sinners. It's not merely for sinners' sake. You understand that? It's for the glory of God. But in that idea of the goal of the Christian life being the glory of God, A subset of that goal is to know and experience in a real and tangible way the love of God. Paul also prays for the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter 3. Turn back a couple pages if you would. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, speaking about his prayer life now for the church in Ephesus, says in verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that is the love of God, may be able to comprehend... With all the other saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. 
that according to the riches of God's power, they might be strengthened through the power of His Holy Spirit, that Christ might dwell richly in their hearts. Think about that phraseology for a minute. Christian, is Christ dwelling richly in your hearts? Your heart is the seat of the emotions. It's the seat of the core of your being, so to speak. Is Christ dwelling in you richly? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how can we illustrate? I don't know. I didn't write anything down. How can we illustrate that? I don't know. What's rich? The other night I bought this Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And the flavor was dulce de leche. And you got to get it, man. They've got it at Albertsons. It's incredible. 30 million calories per spoonful. But it is rich. You know what I mean? And when it's in your mouth, it's just like incredible. And there's just this sense of, oh, you know what? Maybe it's just me, but I mean, it really is. In the same way, there ought to be a sense in your life of just, oh, the richness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, the presence of Christ, the power of Christ, his life manifest in my life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith unto him. There ought to be this sense of awe. I am consumed and subsumed in him and his glory. And he says, as he prays for the Ephesians, he wants them to be able to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. And then he goes on to say, which surpasses all knowledge. (laughs) I want you to comprehend it, but it's beyond knowledge. You'll never comprehend it. And so the love of God is. And you understand that the thrust of the Bible, the heart of Christianity, is not what can you do for God, though we'll talk about that today. We talk about that often. But the thrust of it, the heart of the matter, is what God has done for you. It's God's love for you. It's Jesus Christ upon the cross. That is the thrust in the heart of the Bible. And part of the goal, then, of the Christian is to keep yourself in the love of God. You know, we're told in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God. The only thing that can do that is you. You're the only thing not listed there, you know what I mean. The Christian has got to keep himself in the love of God. God always loves you, but what I mean is this. Sometimes we remove ourselves from the place of experiencing it because we remove ourselves from the place of blessing. You know, the Lord leads us and directs us that he might bless us, not bum us out or curse us. You must understand that. You must understand that. I'm sorry if when you were a kid going to Sunday school, you were taught that God wants to bum out your gig. That is not true. It's not biblical. God wants to bless you. He's your perfect heavenly father. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He is willing to bless you more than you're willing to receive it. But he guides us and directs us and gives us parameters for our behavior that we might be in that place of blessing. And when we go outside those parameters, we simply step out of that place. And yet we go, God bless me. And God goes, I want to bless you. But I need you over here. Because I will not bless what I have already condemned in my word and my character and my holiness. And if you're walking in disobedience, I'm sorry, son, I can't bless that. You understand that? If I tell my son, son, I want you here now. And he's over here disobeying, doing something. I'm not going to bless him. What am I going to do? I'm going to smack him. (laughs) Why? Because he needs to learn to be in the place that's right for him. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He wants to get you in that place. 
I've heard this thing lately from young Christians. Um, there's freedom in Christ. Biblical phraseology, but often understood in young Christians today. They, they use it as a license to not do the right thing. Oh, don't put a legalist trip on me. There's freedom in Christ. I don't need to go to church or I can go ahead and get drunk or I could do this, I could do that with my girlfriend. There's freedom in Christ. Man, you are, oh, you are in so much trouble with the Lord. When the Bible says that there's freedom in Christ, it means that we are free from sin, not free to sin. There is a vast difference. Please understand that. We are free from the power of sin that we might walk in the Spirit of God and receive the fullness of His blessings. God loves us so much, there's no way to express it. And part of the goal of the Christian life is to experience, to know, to walk in that love. And when you do that, one of the natural outflows that comes forth from your life is love for God. We love Him because He first loved us. You understand that? When you experience the love of God, there is just this natural outflow of, oh, Lord, I love you. Remember the woman that came and was worshiping at his feet? And uh, the Pharisee got all bummed out, and the, and the Lord said, hey, he, he, she who's been forgiven much loves much. This woman was just worshiping because she had been forgiven so much. She had received the love of God. And so, Christian, if you're beginning to go dry in your walk today, if things have started to stagnate a little bit, if it's not whatever you want it to be, well, listen, get yourself back in the love of God. Take stock of your life and say, is there some area where I'm disobedient and I've just removed myself from that place of blessing and that intimate presence with the Lord? Get back in that place. Let God shower His love on you and then the natural outflow from you will be, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And then the natural outflow of that is, Lord, and I love your people. You understand that? Those two always go together. The first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving others is always the outflow of loving God. In fact, uh, John says, if you, if you say that you love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. It's amazing when you're in love with the Lord who you can love. It's wonderful. And so Paul, because he had a tremendous love for God, because he had experienced the love of God when he got knocked off his feet on the road to Damascus, taken into the desert for several years, raised up by the Lord, he experienced God's grace, he fell in love with the Lord, his outflow from that was that he loved people. So he's able to say these people I never, he never even saw. Man, I am laboring, I am striving, I am struggling on your behalf in prayer. And it's wonderful that he did so for the Laodiceans. Remember there in verse 1 he mentioned the Laodiceans? They come up again in the Bible in Revelation chapter 3. I'd like you to turn there, please. Revelation chapter 3. In the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, of course, we have Jesus' words to the seven churches. He speaks to the seven churches in the region of Asia Minor there. And as he's speaking to these seven churches, 
He introduces himself in a different way to each one. He's got different names for himself that describe his character. And then he says something positive about him. You know, like, I, you're doing this, and it's great, and it's wonderful. And then he says, but I have this against you. Very interesting. The Laodicean church that we're about to look at in Revelation 3 is the only church out of the seven that the Lord had nothing good to say about. But he's speaking to him here nonetheless, and he's going to give him an opportunity to repent. Let's begin to read it in verse 14. Jesus speaking here. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, angel meaning the pastor, the leader, it's messenger in Greek, the interpretation we believe is the leader of the church. Wouldn't it make sense for the Lord to rebuke an angel and to call him to repentance on behalf of the church? So we believe that's the pastor and the leader. And as the message is to the whole church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Jesus introduced himself as the amen. Amen means so be it. In other words, the sovereignty of God. He's just communicating the sovereignty of God, that all things are in him. And he's the faithful and true witness. God is faithful even when you're unfaithful. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says of himself that he's the beginning of creation, not the first that is created. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's not biblical but meaning literally the origin or source of creation. Remember earlier in Colossians that he created all things Jesus Christ did. So he says here the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, the truth of God, the creative power of God, Jesus Christ says to you, church, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What does this mean? Well, today, if you went to Laodicea there in the region of Turkey in the Lycus Valley, you would see some ruins of a siphon. There was an ancient siphon system or, or, you know, a water transport system that went from other places into the city of Laodicea. They brought cold water in this siphon from Colossae, Right? The Colossians, they had some cold water springs. They brought water from there. And then they brought hot water from thermal hot springs from a nearby place called Denzili. And so if you went there today, you'd see the ruins of these siphons. And they, they had rocks and through the middle they bore holes. And the water would be transported through there from other places into the town. And they would have one that came out cold water and one that came out hot water. And both were good. The cold water was refreshing and it it had a certain value and it had a purpose and it was useful for the people in Laodicea. And also the hot water that would flow. It was cleansing and it was useful for cooking and whatever they did with it. I don't know what they did with it, but it was useful. The water was good and useful when it was hot or when it was cold. But the challenge lay in the transports. If during the transportation of the water, the water became tepid or lukewarm, it wasn't good for anything anymore. It would come out there in the cistern and they go, ah, this water isn't refreshingly cold, nor is it hot and useful. It's just lukewarm. It's not good. We got to fix the system. Something is wrong. You understand that? 
And so the Lord, speaking to this church in Laodicea, he knows that they've got this little siphon. And he says, it's like the siphons that you guys have. I wish that you were hot or cold. But in the transport of your life, something's gone wrong and you've grown lukewarm. You see, the key is in the transport. Ephesians 3 something says that we're not citizens of this earth, but we're citizens of heaven. We're just passing through. Just transport, so to speak. And the goal is to be useful to the Lord. To be hot or cold, whatever the Lord's called you to be. The interpretation isn't the Lord wants you either on fire or He wants you against Him. That's not what He's saying. He's saying, I want you useful. I want you as I've ordained you to be. But along the journey, don't grow tepid. Don't grow lukewarm. What does the Lord say He'll do? He'll spit you out of His mouth. What a horrifying picture that is. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. And if you come lukewarm, the Lord will spit you out of his mouth. But can we all agree it doesn't sound good? I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but it just, it for sure doesn't sound good. And so in their spiritual state, the church in Laodicea had lost their potency. They lost their fervency. They had lost their usefulness. They weren't hot and fiery, and they weren't cool and refreshing. They were just kind of blah. Jesus said that we're to be the salt of the earth in Matthew, the early chapters. We're to be the salt of the earth. You guys know about salt. I've shared this with you before. Sodium chloride. It's a relatively stable chemical compound. Sodium chloride left to itself does not lose its saltiness. And yet Jesus said that there is a time where salt loses its saltiness there in Matthew. He said, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything anymore other than to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. But sodium chloride does not easily lose its saltiness or its salty characteristics. The only time that it does is when it becomes contaminated with some sort of impurity. When sodium chloride comes in contact with some other sort of chemical or substance that reacts with it in such a way that it loses its salty characteristics. Now James wrote in James chapter 1 verse 27, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, that we visit widows and orphans in their distress, and that you keep yourselves unstained from the world. There's that idea. We're passing through the world. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Our every touch with the world should be light. Our grip upon it should be easy. Jesus explained in John 17, we're in the world, but we are not of the world. And so we got to keep ourselves unstained from it or we lose our usefulness to the Lord. We grow lukewarm. We lose our saltiness. Not good for anything anymore. Listen to the horrific pictures. Not good for anything anymore to be thrown out on the ground, trampled under the feet of men, or spewed out of the mouth of the Lord. Christians, we have to do everything that we can to keep ourselves in the love of God. Being in that place where we're cool and refreshing and hot and fiery. Useful for the Lord. We've all got to be in the world. We've all got to travel through it together. We're all going to see things we wish we never saw, heard things we never should have heard. Some of you today will watch the Super Baal and, uh, and uh, man, you're going to see commercials that 
no, no Christian should ever see. You know what I mean? But we've got to keep ourselves unstained from the world. In the world, not of the world. It's like a boat. We've got some, some, some boat people here, guys, a fisherman, some other people. I grew up uh, going out on a boat. Boats are wonderful. Boats are great when they are in the water. They're so useful and they're so awesome and they're so fun. But when the water gets in the boat, we have a problem. The boat should be in the water, but the water is never to be in the boat. Christian, you're to be in the world, but don't let the world get in you. Paul was so in love with the Lord. And he prayed for this church in Laodicea. The Lord obviously revealing to him prophetically that they were headed for difficult times, that they were growing lukewarm, and Paul's battling for them. Now look what we see next about the church in Laodicea, verse 17. Jesus says, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Wow. We do know that that region of Laodicea was a wealthy region. After the time of Jesus and during the time of uh, leading up to the writing of the letters. Earlier on in the century, there's a lot of earthquakes in the Lycus Valley in that area. Earlier on in the century, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. And they didn't have the funds to rebuild themselves. And so the Roman Senate issued them some money to rebuild. But by AD 60, when they were destroyed by another earthquake, they had so much money they were easily able to rebuild. It had become an affluent area, a wealthy area. Uh, There was a highway that passed through there for trade. There was all sorts of commerce. There was all sorts of stuff going on, and they became wealthy. And he says here to the church, you're in an affluent community. You yourselves are affluent, and you say, I have need of nothing. And it was true for them, and it's true for us in the material realm. All of us in this room, we've got need of anything. Is there food in your stomach? You're wealthy, you're rich. Man, we're so blessed. But spiritually, he says to them, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Their affluence and lukewarmness had blinded them to their condition. Do you know that the church in China prays that you and I would be on fire for the Lord? We pray for China. But China sits around and prays for the church in America. Why? They've got nothing. They're forced underground. Husbands and fathers are ripped from families and imprisoned and beaten and some of them killed for their faith. The true Christians there have got to hide when they worship. They've got to struggle to own a Bible. They've got nothing in the material realm, but they are spiritually rich and wealthy. And they look over at America and they go, wow. They've got everything materially. And they're poor spiritually. How humbling is that? That was the condition of the church in Laodicea. Verse 18 then, the Lord says, he gives them some advice. I advise you to buy from me gold refined with fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Gold refined by fire from the Lord speaks, of course, of spiritual riches, not worldly ones. I want you to turn to Psalm 19, if you would. We'll be back here, but go to Psalm 19. 
while you're in Psalm 19, I'm just going to read to you from Matthew 6 something Jesus said, just to set the tone. Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not wrong to own things. Not by any means. Listen. Throughout the Bible, we see God blessing people with material things. Abraham was extremely wealthy, blessed by God. Job was extremely wealthy, blessed by God, and then the Lord took away, and then the Lord gave even more. It's not that God is against material things. The issue is your heart. Where your treasure is, that which is most valuable to you is where your heart is going to be. And if the things of heaven and the things of God are most valuable to you, then your heart will remain steadfast in the things of the Lord. But isn't it easy to get distracted with the things of the world? Man, I recently got a a new dirt bike. Been wanting one for 30 million years since before the world began. Finally got a new dirt bike and that sucker is a distraction to me. I absolutely love it. I love the thing. I think about it all the time. I'm just being honest with you guys. I've got to watch myself. With, it's beautiful. You've got to see it. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I've, I've got to watch that, you know? I've got to make sure that my heart doesn't start going, oh, my dirt bike, my dirt bike. Because generally when I'm in my bed, in, in my like half awake, half asleep hours, I think about the Lord. I pray to the Lord. I speak to the Lord. I let him speak to me. You know the times I'm talking about, you're either just falling asleep or you're just waking up? I love those times. The Lord is so good to be there at those times. I don't know if you've noticed this. And normally in those times, I'm thinking about the Lord. If there's something horrible going on in my life, I'm just going, oh, Lord, help me with this situation. But usually it's just like, I love you, Lord, and I'm falling asleep and I wake up and I go, oh, Lord, awesome. But then you can find yourself going, oh, man, if if I could just find a way to make more money, if I just had more, if I just got that car or if I could just ride my new dirt bike more, I, you know what I'm talking about? It's just me, isn't it? It's just me. Well, look what Psalm 19 says. Look what's valuable in reality. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The word of the Lord, the Bible that you have on your lap, God's precepts, God's instruction, God's commandment, God's testimony are more valuable than gold, more valuable than much fine gold. Turn now to Proverbs chapter 3. I'm desperately trying not to sneeze right now. Proverbs chapter 3. That'd be horrible to sneeze on this microphone. You can't get away from the thing. Proverbs chapter 3 speaks to this idea. 
about true wealth, true riches. Proverbs 3, starting in verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all those who hold her fast. Here we see wisdom personified. Wisdom that is from above. The wisdom of God. And we're told here that it is more precious than anything that you desire. And we're told throughout the book of Proverbs that we're to seek wisdom, we're to seek understanding, we're to go after it. And so the question is, Christian, in juxtaposition to the church in Laodicea who is accumulating for themselves merely material things, neglecting the spiritual and so growing lukewarm, are you cultivating the things of God, the spiritual riches? Are you going after wisdom? Lord, teach me about yourself. Lord, show me. Lord, instruct me for my life. Lord, I want to know your hearts. I want you to dwell richly in me. I want the word of Christ to dwell richly in me. I want to seek after you with all my heart. Lord said, you will find me when you search after me with all your heart. Proverbs chapter 8 now. Same idea, different words. Solomon writing, starting in verse 10, Proverbs 8, 10. He says, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me and those who seek diligently. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasures. Where is your heart? Because where your heart is, or I'm, I'm sorry, where is your treasure? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's in the things of this world, then you're in trouble. We just, we just have to watch it. We've got to daily kind of take stock. The church in Laodicea, some years before Jesus spoke to them in the book of Revelation, you know they got this letter from Paul. He tells them in chapter 4, verse 16, he tells the Colossians, after you read this letter, make sure the church in Laodicea reads it. They read this letter. But about 30 years later, the Lord is now saying to them, oh man, you guys have grown lukewarm. And in your affluency, you've neglected the spiritual things and you need to buy from me gold refined with fire. The second thing that Paul had that caused him to battle on behalf of others was he had a love for God's truth. He understood and he believed what it says in Proverbs here. And so because he wanted people to know the truth, because he knew the value of the truth and the value of the word of God and the things of God and the commandments of God, he labored in prayer for those people. 
The church in Laodicea and the church in Colossae needed it because you remember that Colossae was experiencing false teachers. In Laodicea, false security. Now look back in Revelation chapter 13, or chapter 3 again, verse 18. Revelation 3 again. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, spiritually speaking. And look what he says next. And white garments. He says to them, you guys need to get some white garments. Just like he spoke to them about the water siphons that they had and how they had one for hot and one for cold, the Lord is so good. When he speaks to you, he'll speak to you directly in the context of your life. He's so good like that. He said, look, you guys have these water siphons. One's hot, one's cold. I want you to be like that, not lukewarm, not useless. They were wealthy, and so he said, look, I don't know you guys are into riches, but what about spiritual riches? And now he speaks to them about white garments. Laodicea was famous for raising sheep that had black wool. They raised sheep with black wool. And from that black wool, they made black garments. And Laodicea was known for their beautiful black cotton garments that they would make. And the Lord says, I'm just going to make a contrast for you in your life. You guys make these wonderful black garments and you sell them and people come from all around to buy them from you. But you need to come from me and get some white garments. What is the white garment? It's the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you guys need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're told in uh, Revelation chapter 19, I'll just read it to you. Revelation 19 is the second coming of the Lord and the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says in verse 7 of Revelation 19, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Okay, here's the bride, here's the church that is ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We are to be clothed in the righteousness of God as given to us because of the work of Jesus on the cross, and yet there ought to be an outflow of that righteousness given to us in righteous acts. James spoke about it. He said, demonstrate your faith to me with works. Faith without works is dead. Faith is always exhibited or made clear because there's an outflow of works for the kingdom of God. You guys, he's saying to the church in Laodicea, need to be mindful of heavenly things. You need to be clothed in righteous acts as opposed to nakedness and lukewarmness and uselessness. And then he says to them in Revelation 3.18 again, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Says to him, you guys need to come to me and buy eye salve. Do you know that in Laodicea at that time, there was a school of medicine and that they produced an eye salve that was used for all sorts of common eye ailments throughout the Middle East? And he's saying to him again, look at you guys. You guys are producing this eye salve and you're giving it to people and it's physically helping their eyesight. But I'm talking to you about your spiritual life, the Lord says. Quit looking at the external. Let's deal with the internal. You need to get some eyes out for me that your eyes might be open to the spiritual reality of your life. Man, the Lord needs to say this to me today. Does the Lord need to say this to you today? Britt, wake up. 
Loosen your grip on the things of this world. Be clothed in the righteousness of God and in the outflow of your faith, which are the righteous acts. Be hot, be cold, be useful, be on fire. Have your eyes open, be alert to spiritual things. Realize your condition. And look what the Lord says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. In other words, he says, I'm not saying this to you guys because I hate you guys. I'm disciplining you because I love you. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. Be gnarly, be full on, be radical and repent. When the Lord speaks to you, go, ah, okay, I'm with you. What do we do? Be zealous and repent. The Lord doesn't say, make some small changes. (laughs) Think about it. Adjust a little. Don't be uncomfortable. It'll all work out. He doesn't say that. He says, be zealous and repent. Why? Because good things come when we repent. Good things come when we repent. Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19, Repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord says the same thing here, that when we repent, He immediately receives us into His presence. Verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who overcomes, he who perseveres, he who repents and hears what the Spirit says to the church, the Lord will receive him back again. Remember in Psalm 32, the psalmist said, my life juices are wasting away, literally. He was wasting away because of the weight of his sin. He said, and then I repented. And the Lord surrounded me with songs of deliverance. The Lord is so good to receive us right back. You know what I mean? If we take 12 steps away, the Lord doesn't say, okay, now you got a 12-step program to come back, bro. Come on, let's see you move. Let's work. He doesn't do that. When the prodigal son came home to repent, the father went, and ran. And it's the only time in the Bible God pictures himself in a hurry. He's to run to the sinner who's repenting. And he ran to him, and he fell upon him, and he began to kiss his neck over and over and over and over again. And he put the robe on him, that righteous robe, and he put the ring on his finger which spoke of ownership. You belong to me. And he put the sandals on his feet, which meant that he was a free man, only free men wore sandals. He said, you are clothed in righteousness, you've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, and you are free in Christ Jesus, free from sin, not free to sin. And so he says to the church, just repent. I've got something to do today. Just repent. And what does he say in verse 20, that famous verse? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I'm standing at your heart's door and I'm knocking. Now, this is often used for evangelism, and that's a misapplication of the passage. It's okay. It's not a sin, I don't think necessarily. Say, Lord, stand at your heart's door knocking. But he's talking to the church here, not non-believers. And by the end of the first century, just a few decades after this church was established, Jesus already felt like he was on the outside. And he says, I'm standing on the outside of the church knocking on the door saying, let me in. If you open the door to me, there's no knob on the outside. 
If you open the door from the inside, I will come into you and dine with you and you with me. In other words, I will restore intimacy in our relationship. You'll be experiencing that for which you were created to experience the love of God and intimacy with God. And so the Lord is saying to us today, will you open your heart? Will you hear what he's saying to the church in Laodicea? Is there something you need to buy from the Lord today, so to speak? So to speak, in the sense of gold refined with fire, heavenly things? That righteous robe, does it need to be placed upon you today as a prodigal? Is there a way the Lord needs to open your eyes or put those sandals of freedom on your feet? Today is the day to repent. Here's the deal. I got exactly halfway through my message, and it's been 50 minutes. So we're going to stop right here and do business with the Lord. Don't worry about the message. We'll finish it next week. But worry about what God has already told you. (gasps) With knowledge comes responsibility. Lord, thank you that you've spoken to me and to others that we've got business to do with you, Lord. Thank you that whom you love, you discipline, and that you never gave up on the Laodiceans. You told Paul to be praying for them. And then in the book of Revelation, you spoke to John to be writing to them. Lord, you're so good to pursue us. I pray the Holy Spirit, you would pursue us this morning vehemently. You would pursue us passionately. And you would draw us to repentance by your loving kindness.